we find ourselves going through the book of Corinthians here in the second chapter. What I would like to remind you of as I begin this morning is that the words that the Apostle Paul speaks here are directed to a particular problem in Corinth. There's something going on in Corinth, and that's why Paul says what he does. It's important to keep the context in our view. Of all of the things that are going on in Corinth, all of the, if you're, if you're familiar with what was going on in the Church of Corinth, there was an awful lot of horrid and awful things going on in the Church of Corinth. And out of, out of all of those things, I find it quite interesting that, that Paul chooses as the first and the greatest evidence that there was something skewed in the Church of Corinth was their unity. And that's what he says right off the top. He, he doesn't deal with, with any of the other issues right off the top about all that is going on in Corinth. He doesn't deal with their promiscuity. He doesn't deal with their, all of their looseness and all of, the, all of their things that were going on in the church. He, number one, off the top, evidence that there is some kind of an animating principle in the church that is not right. I hear that there is division amongst you. The first evidence that there's something wrong with the operating principle, even though everything else might be, might be just right. All of the, the banners on the wall might be, might be just right, and, and everything seems to be ticking along. Division is the first evidence that Paul deals with. You are a fractured church. And so these words that the Apostle Paul speaks, they're not merely an exercise in theological reflection. They're not just Paul talking about things that, that, that are, are just abstract and ideas. He's dealing with a real solution to the problem of division in the church. This is the path. This is a singular path that they would have one mind in Christ to be unified as God's people. And he's not only saying something, he's demonstrating the tremendous integrity in the use of spiritual authority in the Apostle Paul. In dealing with their fracturedness, in, in dealing with their division, and identifying that right off the top, that there's something wrong in the Corinthian church, and dealing with their division. This is how he deals with it. And it's, it's not only uh, words for, for us to comprehend and understand about the Spirit, but it's words for us to understand the proper and legitimate use of spiritual authority. See, all of us have had some kind of experience with spiritual authority. All of us wrestle with spiritual authority and sometimes wrestle against spiritual authority. I've wrestled with spiritual authority in my own life. And, I, and I've had times felt divisiveness in my own heart towards God's people. How do you deal with it? How do you overcome it? How do you learn to love God's people? How do you learn to be one with God's people? And so the Apostle Paul doesn't just say, there's division amongst you, now stop it. Listen to me and lay down the law. He doesn't manipulate them. He doesn't abuse them in any way. He has one single purpose in mind. And the path to their unity is this, that they be healed in their thinking. That they understand all that is comprehended for them in the person of Jesus Christ. And that same mind would exist in them. That that mind would be in them. When I say that there was something askew in the church, 
Some of you can say, yeah, I know something about that. Ever experienced division in a church? Ever experienced where all the propaganda seems right, but there's something about the animating principle of the church that seems to be rooted in ego and pride? Actually, most of the people who think that aren't here this morning. And it's a tragedy. And all of us who are here are, are, are whether we know, whether we are self-consciously thinking about it or not, are wrestling with these very issues of spiritual authority. How is it demonstrated in my life? What is the legitimate exercise of uh, spiritual authority in my life? What does it look like? What should I be expecting from God's leaders? But sometimes the reality of church that we experience in a church and its relationships and its dynamics doesn't match up with the propaganda. We use all the right language. Our slogans are all right. Sometimes we can, we can put up on the wall the mind of Christ and, and oh, let's see, we got the cross up there and every, everything, everything seems to, to be in its proper place. But the sum of a church isn't its slogans. The sum of a church is the character of the people who belong to the church. And the mind of Christ is not merely a slogan. It is the, the singular path for us to live in the unity that God intends for us to have. And so that's why Paul speaks of the work of the Spirit to attain to the oneness or the, 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 to have the mind of Christ as the actual, the actual solution to their problem. They're divided. And there's pride. And there's ego. So here's what I would like you to take home with you today. Here's what I think the main point that is important for you to understand. If you don't get anything else this morning, please, please make sure you get this. That the, the path to unity for a church is for the Spirit of God to enable us to see in Christ the wisdom of God and to embrace it, the mind of Christ, embrace it with all of the humility that is in Christ and his, his coming to earth, coming down in, in weakness, his humility, his kindness, his forgiveness that is in the mind of Christ for us on the cross. Okay? You get that? The Apostle Paul is in an interesting place in Corinth. He's, he's actually one of the people that is causing division unintentionally because he's one of the people that people are lining up behind saying, I belong to the Apostle Paul as if there was some kind of, of super-Christians that belong to the Apostle Paul. And so what Paul is saying here to the church in Corinth, he says that, that the only wisdom I have for you is not from me. It's from God. And the only reason I can tell it to you is because God has told it to me. There's nothing about me that is, that is inherently special, except that I am claiming something extremely special, that God has entrusted to me his very mind. And I'm trying to give to you the very thoughts of God. But there's nothing about me that is important. I'm not trying to create a, a special group of, of super-Christians. Don't line up behind me. There, there's, there's no elite group that, that belongs to me. I'm trying to give all of you, all of you that have attained to the knowledge of Christ, all of you that have come to this, this point of perfection, this point of maturity, of apprehending that the cross is for your salvation in Christ, I want you all to understand 
that you need to embrace the wisdom of God and have the mind of Christ. And that, that's, that's such a significant thing. I talk about the demonstration of, of spiritual authority and, and how does it work and the, the feelings that we have sometimes of, of, of alienation from the church and not really, really trusting what's going on. This is significant for a church to understand that if we want to help each other, we need to get to the people that have had the mind of God declared to them. And that's the apostles. When I come to a church, that's what I expect. That's what I want. That is my, my, my highest priority, to submit myself to that spiritual authority, to say that, yes, I want to be united to this body because they understand that the thoughts of God are not in their head. They're in the heads of the people that God has entrusted with his thoughts, and that's his apostles. And so I want to know, what do the apostles think? And if the apostles say very, very little about it, then I don't really want to spend a lot of time talking about it. <laughs> Sometimes some Christians spend a whole lot of time talking about things that, that the people that God has given his thought to actually say very little about. And the things that they do say, I want to know. I want to understand them. As Paul says, this is what we give to you. We give you this. We impart this to you. We speak these things to you. And we speak it as the very mind of God to you. Wow, it's amazing. And so, a couple simple points. One is that Paul distinguishes wisdom from the world, and Paul positively identifies God's wisdom. Just these two points uh, that I'm going to go into now. First of all, distinguishing wisdom from the world. Paul distinguishes just how different God's wisdom is. Now, I'm going to use some words that, that, uh, that might perplex you, but, but don't give up, okay? I'm going to explain them after I, after I say them. So is it okay if I say something that you might not have heard before? Is that okay? Can I have your permission to do that? And I'm going to explain them, okay? All right. This is how Paul, the Apostle Paul, distinguishes God's wisdom from worldly wisdom. And it's, I tell you, this is, this is a significant discipline in the lives of believers, in the lives of Christians, to distinguish God's wisdom from, from the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world is a developed wisdom, and the wisdom of God is a decreed wisdom. There's a vast difference between a wisdom that is developed. It means you, it means you learn it. It means you get it somewhere. It means that you, you have experienced something and you, you come to attain to a kind of wisdom. Do you know what that kind of wisdom is? It's passed on from, from generation to generation. And the reason that we're able to lay hold of it is that all of the different experiences that we have in the world and all of the different people, grandparents and parents and teachers and instructors and, and all the vocations that we learn and all the wisdom that is passed on, it's a developed wisdom. It's a learned wisdom. It's a wisdom that comes from experience. But the wisdom of God, Paul says, is a decreed wisdom. In other words, it, it can't be learned from experience. It can only be imparted. It can only be declared. It can only be revealed by revelation. That's the only way to, to understand. It's the only way to, 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 to come into apprehension of God's wisdom. If, if he didn't declare it, there's nowhere in the world you could learn it. If he didn't speak it, there's no place that you could... You could, just, you could just pick it up. It is a wisdom that is without peer. I mean, how, how could we love it so highly if it were not, if it had a peer? 
If it, had, if it, had, if it was just like this, it, it, it has no example. It has no model. It has nothing from which it comes. God simply decreed it. This is the way that I will act. No other God in, in the history of the nations of the world had ever acted like God acts in the gospel, bearing sin through suffering, forgiving, becoming weak. The verse 9 there where it says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no heart of man imagined. That may be one of the verses in the text that was read that you think, well, yeah, I'm familiar with that. And people often use that verse, pick it up out of the context and use it to talk about heaven. That heaven is going to be so great. It's going to be like no eye has ever seen, no, no ear has ever heard, and no heart has ever imagined. And that's absolutely true, but that idea doesn't come from this text. Paul is not talking about heaven. He's talking about the distinguished nature about God's wisdom, that there is simply no way that you could ever see it. There's no way that you could ever hear it. There's no way that you could ever possibly imagine it. And that's why the rulers of the world, Paul says, crucified Jesus. No temple of any other God had ever acted like this before. There was no pattern. There was no example. There was, nothing, there was nothing in their experience where they could have learned the kind of wisdom that decreed that God would become a man and die for the sins of the world. That he would do everything necessary for their salvation instead of them doing everything for their salvation. And so they crucified him. They had only known of God's, you see, that, that do come from the human imagination <laughs> that do come from human thinking of of what what eyes and human ears and human hearts can imagine and conceive of wouldn't you like a god like this wouldn't you like a god like that i think god should be like this i've heard from this culture from this generation that god is like that no god that comes from the imagination of a human could have prepared them for god to act in the matter in which Jesus acted in the world. And Paul says the natural person, where we get our word psyche, just means the, the natural person. He says they, they, they can't see it. They, they just don't know. And there's a, a famous preaching analogy that is often made by comparing Lot's wife in Genesis who turned back to look on Sodom and became a pillar of salt comparing the eyes and the ears and the heart of Lot's wife as a pillar of salt and her capacity to, to see and to hear and to understand, saying that's what the natural person is like. And contrasting that with the two on the road to Emmaus, where they are also find themselves a little bit like Lot's wife, incapable of imagining what in the world has gone on. And Jesus eats with them. And Luke says that Jesus imparts to them an understanding of what was going on. So, be careful. Be careful of things that encourage you to pray in such ways, to think in such ways, to use whatever impulses and stimulations that are available to them, a lot of it coming from Eastern religions, that encourage you simply to say, look within. What's your head saying? What's your heart saying? What are you imagining? Be careful. Well, so what? 
so that there's a difference between a developed wisdom and a decreed wisdom. Well, all of the wisdom that is acquired in this world, all of the wisdom that is developed, all the wisdom that is learned, it's doomed, Paul says in the first verse there, chapter, verse 6. It's doomed to destruction. And doesn't that make sense to you? <laughs> the worship of a world. Imagine if we were here today worshiping a God that we imagine. Wouldn't it make sense to you that the capacity and the power of the wisdom of that worship wouldn't die when we died? It's just logical sense. It's doomed to destruction. Because it, it has no power than it's greater than its source. No wisdom has any power that is greater than its source. There's an old saying that says a stream can't rise above its source. And so it is with wisdom. The stream of wisdom cannot rise above its source. And the source for the wisdom which the Apostle Paul speaks is, is ultimate reality. God didn't decree to act in this way because he was compulsed to or because he had an example or because he had some model to follow. But he simply, out of his own volition and will and purpose, decreed that he would redeem sinners in the way of the cross. And, and, and because of that, Here's the so what. Because of that, Paul says, it's a wisdom that endures. It, 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 it endures. It, it, it's from forever, and it will be forever. It will, it will rule through all of eternity. You know, there's a lot of stuff on the television I've heard about people looking for treasure, people bringing stuff. Hey, is this valuable? Have I got any money sitting here? Or opening up lockers and saying, hey, is there anything valuable in here? Can you imagine anything more valuable that, in, that is this ancient that is this old, that, that has, has this much value to it and will endure forever, for eternity. Uh, these, these words from, from Proverbs uh, chapter 2 are, are words that I have ruminated over all of my life. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commands with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understand, and if you call out for insight, and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it like gold, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and then find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. It's a, a tremendous treasure that we have in the gospel of God. Seek it. Desire it. The second thing uh, wisdom is distinguished, and it's also particularly or positively identified. The most important point that, that Paul makes about identifying wisdom positively is its source. It is the Holy Spirit. If you are in a season of life where you're wondering about the work of the Holy Spirit, if you're asking questions like this, what does the work of the Holy Spirit look like? Why should I value the Holy Spirit? Why, why should I look for, or what should I look for, and how should I look for the work of the Holy Spirit in my life? I commend this passage to you. Pour over it, go over it, read it over and over, and you will see that the work of the Holy Spirit is not only to, to, to declare the very mind of God to the apostles, but also freely given it to all. And Paul emphasizes this with a very simple and obvious analogy. You don't know what is in the mind of a person until they tell you. You don't know what's in my head unless I tell you what's in Barry's head. 
You can guess. You can imagine. Chances are that you'll judge me wrongly. Chances are that, that you'll not fully understand me. And this is, this is marriage 101, right? And I sit down to, with people who are preparing to get married. I say, look, it, you need to learn how to lay yourself bare to one another because you don't know what's in the other person's head unless you tell them, right? It's like, well, surely she knows or surely he knows what I'm thinking. Surely they know what I, what's in my head. They can tell by the fact that I'm doing this or that. No, we cannot tell. We cannot know. Don't make me guess what's in your head because I will guess wrong. And the same is true. Lord, help us when our marriages are, are a guessing game, right? Tell me what's in your head. Why? Because I want to love you. Tell me what's in your head because I want to know what's really there. Don't hide it from me. I don't care how ugly it is. I don't care how bad it is. Tell me what's in your head because I have covenanted to love you as you really are, not as you wish to be. But I need to know what you're thinking. I need to know what's in your head. Declare it to me. And so it is also with God. You don't know what is in the mind of God unless the Spirit makes it known to you, which is exactly what the Apostle Paul claims he has for them. I have for you the very thoughts of God because there's nothing about God's mind that perplexes the Holy Spirit which has been given to me. Imagine, the, the, the Holy Spirit is the greatest instructor in all of the universe. There's, there's nothing about God and what is in God's head that is, is hidden from him. So don't have thoughts about God that God hasn't given to you. I married into a wonderful family. Thank the Lord for uh, the privilege of marrying into a family that was, was so incredibly, uh, so a, a blessing for me. A uh, family that moved to Canada from Sweden uh, when my wife was 12 years old. And so they learned how to speak English together. And part of the culture that is developed in a home that's trying to learn another language is that they do exactly this. They try to figure out what's in your person's head and try to finish the sentences for them because you're trying to help, right? Like, you know, there's something in their head and they're trying to get it out in another language. And so you, you, you do that. You just try to help each other. And to, but of course, when I came into the family, they'd all been here for 20 years and they all knew English very, very well. But they still had this particular habit of finishing one another's sentences. And I remember saying to my wife one time, would you stop that? Stop what? You just finished your dad's sentence. Stop it. How do you know what's in his head? Let him think. You know, if you ask me what's in my head and ask me what I think, chances are you're going to have to wait about three seconds to get an answer. And you would be amazed how few people there are in this world that have three seconds to wait. And so I sit and I listen to people telling me what I'm thinking. And many people think they know God's thoughts better than he does. And they declare to God what should be true of him. Only God knows what he is thinking. Don't attribute thoughts to God. Why? <laughs> Do I have to tell you why? Because you're human. Because I'm human. Because I am so small. Imagine how pitiful the worship would be of a God who we could give thoughts to. How sick would that be? That's the old-fashioned way of sick. It's just really bad. It's not good. You think like a human, I think like a human, like a fallen human. And in fact, this went on in the scripture all the time. 
God would look at his people and he'd say, well, I, I, God, uh, it's, it's okay if we just look on this injustice. It's okay if we, we just turn a blind eye to it. It's okay if we don't see the sin because God doesn't see it. He turns his eye to it too. And, and God says, who do you think I am? Do you think I'm like you? Psalm 50, verse 21. You think I'm like a man? You think I don't see? Isaiah chapter 40. One of the most wondrous passages in all of the Bible. I hope you're familiar with it where God says, who did all of this? Did you put the stars up in the sky? Who made all the mountains? Who instructs the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who tells the Lord what to do? Job, of course. And all of the wise friends that Job had, telling them, him, their thoughts about God. And God at the end says, who do you think you are? But this is the beauty of the Holy Spirit, that he does give us the thoughts of God. We do have what's in the mind of God. It is not concealed from us. It is not a mystery to us. It is not hidden from us because the Spirit is given. And what the Spirit declares, what is in the mind of God about us, it's Christ. It's Christ on the cross. Christ is the embodiment of all that is in God's mind for us. You know, this is such an, an, an amazing thing. You know, that, that, that in the pursuit of Christ, what you're pursuing is all that is in the mind of God for you. And that's why Paul says, have the mind of Christ. Understand, this is what God has for you. Learn to understand, this is what God has for the people around you. Learn to understand that this is the way I went about it. Do you think you're better than me? Do you think you're above becoming weak? Do you think you're above humbling yourself? Do you think you're above all of these things? Have the mind of Christ. I hope you can see that the, the path to living together in unity comes from this kind of wisdom. The Francis Chan quote that I, I liked with regards to marriage counseling, he said this. He says, when two people are living badly and they decide to live together, it only gets worse. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that sounds like church as well. And a whole bunch of people are living badly, and they decide to get together and pretend that they're one people, it only gets worse. We need to live well, which means to have the mind of Christ. This is the singular path to unity, to have a knowledge of our Savior, to understand his understanding of us, his view of us, with the weakness in which he came, the lowliness, and died so that others could live. See, the Christians who possess that character, that character of humility and kindness and love, decreed by God, declared by God, not imagined or conceived by anybody else, but, but brought to earth in Jesus, they can live together in unity. And they also learn and know the vocabulary of reconciliation. Do you know the vocabulary of reconciliation? It comes from the mind of Christ, where, where, where Christ reveals to us who we really are, and we say, please forgive me. You know that those words are actually necessary for unity in a church? Unity doesn't come from perfection. It comes from the capacity to be reconciled. I am sorry. Would you please forgive me? It's no wonder the Apostle Paul prays the way that he does so many times. I'm going to read these, this prayer. I, I wish we could read this every week uh, where, where the Apostle Paul prays this. I bow my knee, he says to God, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power 
to his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God.